0: Organizations like the World Economic Forum, for example, headed up by Klaus Schwab, Mm -hmm. they have been articulating what you just described since the 1990s. Schwab has been arguing for this for, for decades. And remember, the World Economic Forum is the place where the leaders of large corporations come together with the heads of government as well as the heads of big NGOs to talk about what should be happening in the world, and how the economy should be developing, and how we deal with political problems, social problems, environmental problems, etc. And it's a very corporatist mindset because it's like big business, big NGOs, big government working together to try and direct the economy in particular directions, which is classic corporatism. Um, But it's also, I think, reflective of the way that with the failure of central planning, The desire of many people to try and come up with a different set of economic arrangements that's different to the free market has not gone away.
1: On this episode of Liberty Curious, I sat down with Dr. Samuel Gregg, prolific author, member of the Mount Pelerin Society and distinguished fellow in political economy and senior research faculty at the American Institute for Economic Research. He has a doctorate in Moral, Philosophy, and Political Economy from Oxford University and a Master's in Political Philosophy from the University of Melbourne. His new book, The Next American Economy, will be available this fall. It was a pleasure speaking with him about free markets, cronyism, central planning, Marxism, and stakeholder capitalism. You can follow Sam on Twitter at Dr. Samuel Gregg. If you enjoy my podcast and other content by AIER, make sure to subscribe to our new YouTube channel dedicated to short, dynamic videos that explore topics of sound money, economic freedom, defending freedom, and fighting collectivism. Welcome to the show, Sam.
0: Thank you for having me on. It's great to be with you today, Kate.
1: Great. So I'd like to actually read something to you that you wrote, and then maybe you could comment on it. So you said, one of the most significant economic achievements of the past 50 years has been the radical diminishment of extreme poverty. Between 1990 and 2018 alone, those in extreme poverty fell from 1.9 billion, 36% of the world population, to 650 million, about 7%. This pace and scale of this decline is unparalleled in human history. And these changes were not achieved through massive wealth transfers from developed nations to the developing world of the type advocated by many development economists after 1945. Nor did it have much to do with foreign aid or industrial policy, likewise promoted by the same experts. It was accomplished through economic growth and that growth was primarily driven by nations shifting their economies from the late 1960s onwards towards competition and trade openness. Markets, it turned out, were far more effective at reducing poverty than any of these measures. Beginning in the early 1990s, however, many development economists changed their tune. So what happened from the 90s on?
0: Well, many things happened from the 90s on. I think the main thing, of course, was that we saw in 1989, 1990, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the removal, if you like, of central planning as a genuine option for countries to follow when thinking about economic development. But what happened I think in many respects was that a lot of development economists shifted their argument. They shifted their argument away from things like we need more foreign aid, we need more uh, external intervention, we need a more activist government that's involved in a type of centralized planning. Instead, they started arguing in favor of what you might call sectoral interventions into the economy. By that, I mean essentially industrial policy. Now, industrial policy classically defines, is essentially a situation whereby the government doesn't try and, and plan an economy in the sense that we understood in centralized planning, which existed in the Soviet Union and many other countries. Rather, it tries, the government tries by specific interventions, whether it's through setting up state companies or offering subsidies, or are trying to organise the regulatory arrangement to encourage investment in one area rather than another. This, this form of industrial policy was basically designed, in many cases, to try and produce specific outcomes that advocates of industrial policy say would not have happened if markets had just been allowed to take their course. Now, uh, what's interesting about this is that industrial policy wasn't new, it's never. It's not a new thing. It was in, implemented in a number of countries after the Second World War, <clears throat> particularly in developed economies because it was seen as necessary to, type, uh, to engage in a type of modernization of economies that needed to be modernized. But what we see with industrial policy in case after case after case is basically failure. Failure to deliver on the goals that were promised, but also significant dysfunctionalities associated with the pursuit of industrial policy. Because industrial policy inevitably involves governments and politicians deciding who is going to get what when it comes to who gets to implement the industrial policy, who is going to be subsidized, who is going to receive special treatment. And as soon as the government gets involved or politicians get involved in that type of decision making, we can be very sure that what is often called cronyism will start to develop. And that's deeply problematic because in crony capitalist arrangements, um, things like economic development and where where you want the market to develop is not determined by consumer preferences or entrepreneurs pursuing particular objectives. Rather, it's the state making decisions about where to allocate resources. And in the conditions of really any political system, you are going to inevitably find that businesses that want to basically get close to the government and secure privileges will inevitably gravitate towards industrial policy as a way of trying to do that, to become close to government and to get government subsidies to get special privileges. And that I think is very much characteristic of industrial policy. And it also explains why industrial policy fails because politically driven economic decision-making when it comes to allocating resources in an economy uh, is very bad at outguessing markets. So that's the development, that's the way in which a lot of economic thinking developed in the 1990s and it's still around today. In fact, I would argue we're going through a renaissance right now of many people on the left but also on the right Mm -hmm. who very much favor industrial policy as a way forward.
1: So do you think that what happened was when the Soviet Union fell, there was still this kind of, you know, human tendency towards central planning. And so they just found another way or another way to package it or to tweak it. And then they developed industrial policy.
0: Well, as I said, industrial policy has been around for a very long time. It precedes the emergent, the fall of the Soviet Union. But what is interesting, I think, and I think what you're pointing to, is the instinct that many people have, and it's completely understandable why people would think this way, that through politics, you can develop and gain and even guarantee better economic outcomes than through free exchange, entrepreneurship, trade liberalization, et cetera, all the things that we associate with free markets. Mm-hmm. It's not surprising because there's a, type of, there's a type of mentality, a type of outlook, which suggests that if only I can be given the tools, the tools of government, whether it's fiscal policy or monetary policy, then I can engineer, almost like I'm the person who's pulling levers, I can, like I'm driving a car. I can guarantee certain results. So while central planning was pretty much discredited, I think, by the fall of the Soviet Union, and what we discovered after the fall of the Soviet Union, when we discovered that just how bad these economies were, um, it's not surprising that people started to look for other ways of using the state, or going back to older ways of trying to use the state to guarantee particular outcomes. And I think it's partly because Uh, We have this instinct of wanting to do something. We want to intervene, we want to guarantee better results. And sometimes the motives for doing that are entirely laudable. I don't like poverty, I don't know anyone who likes poverty. I want to see more people, like everyone else, get out of poverty. The question is not about the ends, the question is about the means. And even today, there are many people who still believe that particular types of intervention, whether it's tariffs, industrial policy, or even in the way that we structure companies today, mandating these things through particular laws, you can somehow guarantee results at a faster pace than they would otherwise be guaranteed by markets.
1: So how far back does industrial policy go?
0: Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for that question, because I, I would argue that There's several manifestations of this. One is, of course, what was called mercantilism. Mercantilism was the economic system that really dominated much of the European mindset and landscape from about the late 15th century on in towards the 18th century. And mercantilism was many things, but it involved the use of tariffs, it involves governments giving particular privileges to particular companies because those companies had people who were close to government ministers or who were close to people at the different royal courts through which most European countries were governed at the time. So in a sense, there's a type of proto, proto-interventionist proto mindset that's very prevalent at this particular point in time. Then in the 18th century, we see the move towards markets. This is partly because mercantilism was clearly starting to break down as an economic system, but also because of the publication of books like Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations in 1776, which of course demolished the intellectual case for mercantilism, but also systematically laid out the case for markets in a way that it had not been systematically laid out before. And then in the the beginning of the 19th century through to around about the 1870s, we see these free market ideas becoming very, very prominent in most of the European world, uh, including including much of the Americas. And then in the mid 19th century towards the 1870s, we see the emergence of particular thinkers arguing in favor of maybe the state should be doing certain things. A very good uh, example of this is the German economist Friedrich List, LSIT who basically argued in favor of the government trying to promote specific industries or specific sectors of the economy, uh, because he believed that it was necessary for the government to do this in the the sense that markets would be too slow, or he didn't think markets would deliver the desired outcomes. So we see it in this particular period of time becoming more prominent. And I would argue that uh, some of these ideas manifest themselves in the way that John Maynard Keynes thought about economic development, particularly from the mid-1930s onwards, and his ideas about how the state could intervene to smooth the business cycle, and some of the policies he recommended for that included things like what we would call uh, proto-industrial policy.
1: So can we go back to Adam Smith and talk a little bit about the invisible hand and why markets actually are a superior system?
0: Sure. Well, The Invisible Hand is only used a few times by Adam Smith, maybe two or three times. And it's not just used in his Wealth of Nations, it's also used in his prior book, the book that he said he actually liked the most of all his books, which was A Theory of Moral Sentiments. And The Invisible Hand, I think, is best understood as a type of metaphor. Because the way Smith uses it, he says, as if by an invisible hand. So what he means by that is that There's nothing planned here that economic development of the type that he's talking about is not planned from the top down, which was very much the case in in certain European countries at the time. Rather, he says, markets are very good because it's people acting freely, entering into exchanges with each other, freely creating uh, goods and services, through entrepreneurship, through the use of economic creativity. And so, and of course, none of this involves planning. It doesn't involve a type of central person or a group of people, or even a group of governments working together with merchants trying to organize things in a particular way. And he he, he sort of basically said that the problem with that type of approach is that it can't help but make mistakes, because there's just certain things that governments Uh, can't know about what's going on in an economy. He also said that uh, knowledge and skills and opportunities and resources are much better coordinated when we focus upon consumers rather than the state. And we we let people engage in these types of free transactions because he said, in the end, you're putting your trust in the capacity of free people to make free decisions for themselves within a context of rule of law, within the context of a particular moral culture, and this, he was very convinced, would, as if by an invisible hand, bring about much greater economic prosperity and greater freedom more generally, than the type of mercantilist systems that preceded him, and the type of planned economies, which in what you might call mixed economies, that started to dominate the world from about the 1930s up until the 1980s in the 20th century.
1: So um, these principles were also foundational to the United States, correct? Like they were in the Federalist Papers and the Founding Fathers were were fans of this idea. Is that not
0: true? More or less. So I think if you look, for example, at the Federalist Papers, we often think of the Federalist Papers as uh, the best way of approaching and trying to understand the Constitution of the United States and how the different articles relate to each other. And that's certainly true. But it's also the case that if you read the Federalist Papers very closely, you can see that the political economy that's being articulated there is one that emphasizes private property, that sees great advantages with things like free trade, which sees enormous opportunities both economic but also in the moral realm when it comes to commerce. So the vision of, of political economy that emerges in the Federalist Papers is what you would call that of a commercial republic, a society in which commerce plays a much bigger role than you might find in some of the societies that preceded it, but also goes hand in hand with a commitment to liberty, to constitutionalism, and rule of law. And that, I think, is very much the political economy that forms the outlook of uh, the Federalist Papers. Now, you mentioned the founding. Well, I think it's fair to say that at the beginning of the the American experiment in ordered Liberty, there were considerable economic debates about the future of this young republic. So on the one hand, you had some people who wanted to see economic modernization, who wanted to see industrialization, who wanted to see rigorous trade between America and the rest of the world. And there were others, I think Thomas Jefferson is perhaps the most notable in this regard, who at least initially saw America as a type of republic that consisted of people living on small farms in small communities, almost a very agrarian type of economic circumstances that very much reflected what you might describe as the economic conditions prevailing in some parts of the south of the United States. Uh, so, so you see different visions among the founders about what they wanted to see, and I think it's fair to say that the first vision that I mentioned—that of a commercial republic rather than a, a republic of what you might call yeoman farmers—is the one that one out. And maybe the, one of the ways we can see this is that if we look at Washington's farewell address, that's one of my favorite founding documents to read because not only is it George Washington, who I, I still think is America's greatest president, I think it's not just him giving out advice to the Americans of his time and the Americans of our time about what he thought was important when it came to preserving this republic, he also articulates a pretty clear vision of a commercial republic. He talks about the need for free trade between the, colon- between the states, because he thought this-, this trade between the states would help to overcome some of the very strong regional differences. He also basically articulated a more or less free, free trade position when it came to America's engagement with the rest of the world commercially. Now, it's not a completely laissez-faire position that's articulated there, I think that's fair to say, but it is more or less very much a position in which he says, we should be trading freely with our neighbors, and he uses expressions like, we should not be asking for favors, and we should not be giving privileges. Now, that sounds very similar to the type of economic vision that you find in Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, which, by the way, was the only book in George Washington's library that Washington himself wrote notes in the margins of.
1: Ah, very, very interesting. So it sounds like this was kind of an extension of the same idea where people should be free to trade with each other and countries should also be free to trade with each other.
0: Yes, more or less, and now I say more or less because the founders were also very interested and attentive to things like domestic politics. They were also very attentive to questions of foreign policy, and one of the things you find with these thinkers is that they're very aware of these realities. So for example, in the case of the the Republic of the 1790s one of the geopolitical realities they're having to deal with is that there is a global war going on between Britain and France at that particular point in time. And there's also immense division within the United States, even within Washington's cabinet itself, about what should be America's stance regarding these sorts of questions. And this flowed into questions of trade policy. So for example, Thomas Jefferson said, well, basically, I think we should just trade with France because we don't like Britain and we need to be supporting the revolutionaries in France. Whereas Alexander Hamilton is saying, "Uh, hang on a minute, Uh, that's an interesting idea, but our biggest trading partner is Britain. And that's not likely to change in the near future. So my point is not not the specifics of these matters. It's just that the founders did factor in some of these political and foreign policy considerations. That's why I said it's difficult to say that they were um, a sort of complete laissez-faire people. They, They weren't because they were trying to think through these complex domestic and geopolitical questions while simultaneously trying to develop this idea of America as a commercial republic that as far as possible was able to trade freely with other nations throughout the world.
1: And what about, you know, I know now we have a lot of tariffs and we have protectionism, and there's kind of this um, movement within the conservative party um, that they advocate really for uh, putting America first and kind of this nationalism. Um, Was that existent then as well? Was there some, some arguments about that?
0: Well, yes, certainly, but I think it's very important to understand that when people like uh, Washington or Alexander Hamilton were described as nationalists, uh, they didn't mean the same thing as we mean today. What they meant was that if they were thinking about the United States of America, they would not think they were as opposed to the states the different states of the United States. Because remember, we're talking about a period of time in which someone like Jefferson and many other people at the time, they described their state as their home, as their country. So when the phrase nationalism was used in the American context in the 1790s, it's about emphasizing the nation as a whole, as a collective whole, rather than a collection of states that just happen to be within the same sort of political arrangement. So it's a very important distinction, I think, to make. The people who are using, uh, embracing the language of nationalism today in the United States, uh, they mean some different things. It's not about um, the United States visa as, a, as a constitutional republic, vis-a-vis the states that are part of that constitutional republic. It's very much an emphasis upon, as I think you use the expression, America first. And what they mean by that, at least in terms of economics, at least in terms of economics, what they generally mean is that the federal government in particular needs to intervene in the economy in ways that they believe will promote the interests of Americans and the United States economically, because they're skeptical to a certain degree about the way, about the, the degree to which they believe economic liberty, free trade at home and abroad are likely to help and bolster Americans. Because many of them have, are basically buying into the argument that free trade and free markets have in some ways weakened the United States. And they believe that particularly in in light of the obvious, I think the obvious problem that China is now creating for us geopolitically but also economically, their argument is that the state needs to be intervening much more in the economy, uh, not just domestically but also when it comes to things like trade, if America's interests, national interests are to be preserved. Now my argument is that I'm as much a patriotic American as anyone else. I have no love for communist China. But I also think that economic nationalist policies, despite the language and the rhetoric of patriotism with which they're often invested, I think they actually do a lot of damage to the United States. Protectionism, for example. I'm sure your listeners know that the thing about protectionism is that, yes, it may hurt your competitors, but it also hurts the people of the country that is implementing it, right? Because it means when you put tariffs on foreign goods, guess what? American consumers end up paying more than they otherwise would for those goods and services. It also means that American businesses are encouraged to become less competitive. They become lazy, they become complacent. The more protected they are, the less competitive and the more complacent they generally will become. So, my argument with uh, a lot of the people who describe themselves as, eco- as economic nationalists is that I'm not against the well being of the United States. I believe in the well being of the United States as much as any other American. But I think the means, the economic means that economic nationalists want to use, are actually very detrimental to the general welfare of the United States.
1: And so what would be some arguments for free trade then? Like you're saying what doesn't work, but mm-hmm. how how does that look when it does work?
0: Well, it does a number of things. I think, first of all, it lowers prices for American consumers. It does so because when you remove tariffs or you reduce tariffs, then by definition you are removing extra costs that are imposed by the federal government upon goods and services coming in to the United States. So that benefits 330 million American consumers. And it's really important, I think, for us to remember that the point of economic activity is the consumer. It's not to bolster inefficient businesses. it's The point of the economy is not to uh, help those businesses that just happen to be closer to people in Washington DC rather than others. The point of the economy is consumption. The well-being of consumers. And so to the extent that you get rid of tariffs and protectionism, by you get a lower price range for consumers. That basically also, by the way, helps to um, promote the well-being of poorer Americans, right? Because richer Americans can afford, if you like, the extra costs imposed by tariffs. But that's less the case, I think, it certainly is less the case, when it comes to those whose incomes are lower than others. So that's the first thing. The second thing I would do, I would say is that when you move in a free trade direction, you force American businesses to become more competitive because when you lower tariffs, it gets less, less incentives for businesses to look to Washington DC for handouts or for privileges or for quotas or whatever it happens to be. And this is very important because it means that suddenly American businesses are constantly having to say, okay, we're doing all right, but guess what? The Japanese or the Europeans or the Russians are doing this particular thing better than us. So if we're going to compete, we need to do things more efficiently and effectively. And we won't run and hide behind protective barriers that will somehow uh, ward off the effects of competition. And of course, the thing is that in the long term, protectionism doesn't provide the type of protection that its its proponents suggest that it will for American businesses. Because it encourages them to become lazy. It encourages them to get close to government. It encourages Mm -hmm. them to be less entrepreneurial. It encourages them to not adopt technologies that they need to adopt if they're going to remain competitive. So these are, if you like, the ways in which free trade and trade liberalization, it's not just a question of mutually benefiting benefiting those whom we trade with, it's also a question of really, I would argue, a type of economic discipline that our economy needs as a whole and American businesses need in particular. And we know what happens to businesses when they try and resort to things like tariffs, or subsidies as a way of improving their position. They end up like the automobile industry in cities like Detroit. Inefficient, run by complacent managers and overmighty unions, and constantly running to the federal government for handouts mm-hmm. instead of taking a hard look at themselves and saying, we have to stop pretending that the government can rescue us. We need to get more competitive if we want to stay alive, let alone be productive.
1: Yeah, you know, I think that that's just human psychology. If, if if you're just, you know, allowed to skate along in life and you don't really have to compete, you don't need to be creative either, right? There's no creative force in that. You're just allowing things to happen to you, and then you have stagnation, essentially. I,
0: exactly. No, that's exactly right, because I, I think what you're pointing to is that things like the type of government interventions that we're talking about, they, dis- they, they don't provide incentives to be creative. They don't provide incentives to be entrepreneurial. They encourage you to be satisfied with the status quo. And we know that in the conditions of a, a global economy, when there are lots of people who are w- willing to work very hard, there are entrepreneurs who are willing to take big risks, you can't afford to adopt that type of mentality that you're describing because you will become uncompetitive, you will become less entrepreneurial, you will become in the long term as a country, less wealthy.
1: And and you know, it's funny because it, it also makes me think of the, the moral and social problems that we seem to have now as well, because when mm-hmm. you have meaning in your life, which usually meaning is associated with, you know, your value system, as well as hard work, and creating something, achieving something, and making something of yourself and of your time, then you tend to have people who are kind of more depressed. They, they don't really have a sense of meaning. And so therefore they start to fall into this kind of nihilism. And I think we're seeing this nihilism reflected in the way they want to rewrite American history, for example, with the 1619 Project and things like that.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. No, I think, unfortunately, Kate, you're right. (laughs) You're (laughs) right, because um, let's think about a classic problem, which many people have talked about in more recent times, which is young white men in America. The number of young white men in America who are addicted to substances of some sort or another, who are not working, who are... Uh, essentially uh, accepting things like disability payments who have checked out in many respects of the responsibilities that come along with being an adult, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. now there's an economic dimension to this, I think, because the more you you enable people to drift in that type of direction, whether it's th- through things like disability benefits or handouts of some or, or whatever it happens to be, that I think generally has a demoralizing effect upon people because one of the things that makes us distinct as human beings, and you mentioned it uh, in your comments, is work. Human beings work. We are the only creatures in the world who work. Dogs don't work, deer don't work, ants don't work, plants don't work. We work. And when we work, we transform not just the world around us, we also transform ourselves we become different people. We acquire virtues, we acquire habits that we would find much harder to acquire if we didn't engage in work. Now, and that leads you to the question of, well, what is most likely, what is the type of economic arrangements that's most likely to guarantee work on a sustainable basis for large numbers of people over a long period of time? And I would argue that free markets are the most is are the, are the set of economic conditions that are most likely to guarantee that in the long run?
1: Well, that's really well said, Sam. And you know, it's funny because I was reading many of your publications recently, and one thing that you bring up is the issue that proponents of free markets don't necessarily explain the moral side or the side mm. that's related to virtue and why it's not only superior as an economic system, uh, but but as a system that, that brings well-being in, in other facets of life. So, do you want to get into that a little bit?
0: Sure, absolutely. So, um, <clears throat> I'm very much a free marketer, otherwise we wouldn't be talking today, right? <laughs> but one of the things about, I find, with many people, not all, but many people who talk about free markets, is that uh, we tend to limit ourselves to the economic benefits And the economic benefits, I think, are pretty obvious. The growth of wealth, the lifting of people out of poverty, the opportunities that a dynamic, creative economy provides for people in different ways, in different settings over long periods of time. That's all great, and it's all true. But people who oppose free markets, that's not generally where they start the argument. Where do they start the argument? They start the argument with things like, by saying things like, well, isn't this exploitative? Isn't this unjust? Isn't this a system that involves the degradation of some people and, and, and to the well being of others? Isn't this a system that is, in many respects, disrespectful of human dignity? Now, <clears throat> I mean, you find hard versions of that argument in the thought of people like Karl Marx. But you also find some some, uh, people on the right who more or less say not quite that, that, that extreme thing but who are clearly very skeptical of the effects of markets upon what you might call the moral culture surrounding us. Now what's interesting about this is if you go back to some of the early pioneers of free market political economy such as Adam Smith. Well, guess what? His first book was a book we mentioned before, his theory of moral sentiments, which he loved. He thought that, he actually preferred that book to his his own Wealth of Nations. And what he does there is he explores the moral psychology of people and how people develop as moral beings. And he's very clear that, that in the conditions of a commercial society, there are enormous opportunities for the type of acquisition of virtues that are much harder in a feudal society or uh, the type of economic life that existed within the conditions of, say, the Roman Empire, or even in more relatively recent history, in economies in which slavery is a very prominent part of the economy. Because in commercial societies, you have to be willing to take risks, and that's a habit you have to acquire. You have to be prudent, you have to be very careful about your decision making with your resources and how you economically interact with other people. You have to be willing to trust people, trust people that you've never met in your life before. You have to be willing to be creative, which goes along I think very nicely with the whole emphasis upon risk taking. These are just not sort of mechanical functions of human beings, there's a type of moral choice that's involved when you engage in these activities. It might not be at the forefront of your mind, but it's intrinsic to the type of decision that you're making. What's interesting about this, I think, is that if you if you do look at surveys of entrepreneurs, particularly American entrepreneurs, it's certainly true that profit and making money is one of the motivations. But if you look at what the surveys say, Equally important, and sometimes even more important, is that entrepreneurs just like exercising creativity. They like being risk takers. They like putting together different combinations of resources, ideas, and people to produce new products and new services that benefit lots of people. So in other words, there's other motivations that are going on in the context of a market economy, which I think those of us who favor free markets should be talking about more.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, this comes down to self-interest, which is a virtue, uh, but nowadays it seems to be pathologized. Like if you're self-interested, it means that you're selfish, you're exploitative and everything that, you're, that you've mentioned so far in this discussion. So why do you think that we've got to this place? Why are we here where mm. capitalism, free markets, um, and self-interest are being seen as vices, and things like you know, pathological altruism and collectivism are seen as virtues?
0: Well, there's a lot of answers to that, that, that question, but let me, so let me just start with uh, the first point. First of all, I think we need to have an accurate understanding of what self-interest is, particularly as people like Adam Smith talked about it. When Smith talks about self-interest, he doesn't mean selfishness. He doesn't mean greed. He's very clear he doesn't mean these things, because, not least because he condemns things like greed in other parts of his writings. What he's talking about is the interest of the self. And the self that we're talking about, and certainly Smith is talking about, is a very complicated being. We do things, we pursue things that we believe to be in our interests, but our interests go beyond just material acquisition. Our interests can include things like Our spouse, our family, uh, those who are close to us, uh, the institutions of civil society that are around us, those who work for us, those who we work for. So the self is not just a more complicated uh, being than the sort of materialistic understanding that I think is often uh, articulated by critics of the idea. It's also a being that's intimately involved in relationships with other people, because we are social beings. We are, by definition, involved in relationships with other people, we can't exist without other people. So I think that's the first thing, we need to be clear about what we mean by self-interest. But we also need to be clear about where some of these negative views have arisen from. And there's, I think, some long-term causes and some more immediate causes. So some of the long-term causes, I think, are, frankly, uh, the deep influence of Marxist thinking, Marxist imagery, and Marxist Marxist assumptions about the world. I mean, it's often tempting to think that all that came to an end in 1989 when communism collapsed in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. I think it's very difficult to understand the world today without understanding that many people still have that mindset. So when they look at capitalism, they're looking for exploitation. They don't see it in terms of people working together in, in, in commercial relationships mutually benefiting from exchange. They see one person taking from another. They also see things in terms of class. There's the working class, then there's the middle class, the bourgeois, these are by definition the exploitative people. Even the everyday language that we use, I think often reflects this this widespread influence of Marxist ideology, uh, a long time after books like, like Das Kapital were first written. So that's a, that's a sort of very long-term reason. Uh, another reason, however, or so let's call it more proximate reasons, and I think this is more, explains a great deal about some of the people that you described at the beginning, millennials, et cetera, who often had these very negative views of capitalism. There's two things going on. One is these are people who in many respects have grown up with no memory or no knowledge of what it was like to live with societies in the world in which central planning was a norm. Um, We have entire generations of people who who don't know who Joseph Stalin was, or who don't know just how bad the centrally planned economies of, that were produced by people like him, but many other people, just how bad they were. But even in um, what you might call um, those who are arguing in favor of social democracy, which I think is much more common these days, what you find is they have no appreciation of what the reality of Swedish 1970s social democracy was actually like, or the fact that Scandinavian countries abandoned those models in the 1970s because they were economically and socially recognized as having very, very bad effects on these countries. Another, I think, but another thing I think is, I I, I talk about this often, and I think it's this. We can't underestimate just how much damage I think was done to the image of capitalism and free markets by the 2008 financial crisis and the subsequent Great Recession. Now, I could sit down and we could talk about all the ways in which bad government policies, whether it was housing policies implemented by the Clinton administration and continued by the Bush administration, or whether it was things like the Federal Reserve keeping interest rates way too long, way too low, way too low for too long. We can talk about all the effects that bad government policies had in causing the financial crisis. But guess what? We lost that argument, and I don't mean lost in terms of we had a we had a less con, a, a less better a, a worse argument or argument didn't make sense, but in terms of the PR side of things the dominant narrative was that this was a failure of capitalism and therefore we need lots more government intervention in the economy to make sure that this never ever happens again. So even today, so that the financial crisis happened, what almost 14 years ago now, but that is still hanging over many people's minds when they think about capitalism. Mm -hmm. and why they often have quite negative views of this and why they're willing to think about things like, well, maybe we should have some intervention. Maybe a few tariffs wouldn't be bad. Maybe the occasional industrial policy would be a good idea. I don't think we can underestimate the legacy of free marketers losing the public relations battle about what was the real cause of the 2008 financial crisis if we want to understand why such negative views of capitalism are quite prevalent among a good number of people today.
1: There's a lot to unpack there, and that was very well said. Um, But what I'm thinking about here is that, you know, there's a lot of fear there as well for that generation because you yes. know they they've seen everything kind of unravel you know there was september 11th all of these events in their lifetime and then at the same time as all of that fear and all of the uncertainty and basically something that they can easily point out as a failure of capitalism you have the universities and academia who are pushing Marxist ideology and power dynamic relationships and, and things mm-hmm. that are related to Marxist ideology in one way or another. So, do you think that that has also shifted uh, the minds of, of the youth?
0: Absolutely. So, to your first point. Uh, so, I grew up in a world, I was a child at the time when, a very young child, I remember that I had vague memories of the 1970s. But I remember my parents talking about things like inflation and how bad it was and how damaging it was. Many of the people you're describing have, until very recently, had no experience of what it's like to grow up in in an economy where inflation was a big reality. So what I'm pointing to here is there's there's different experiences. Now you mentioned, for example, uh, September 11. If you think about that, but you also think about things like the financial crisis, the great recession. Um, We think about the very unsteady years, economic years of the Obama administration. We think about things like the emergence of of a very aggressive China. Um, So we think about things like the pandemic and the state massively intervening in the economy to try and uh, do all sorts of things that we would never tolerate in a time of relatively normal circumstances, right? So if you've grown up in that type of world, it's not surprising that you tend to prioritize security over liberty. It's not surprising. Mm -hmm. I find it completely understandable why people would think that way. But when coupled with what you're pointing to, which is a very anti-market, a very anti-commerce, a very anti-capitalist understanding of the world that prevails in many universities and colleges today, we shouldn't be surprised that large numbers of people come out of college with quite negative views of business or who think that the purpose of business is not about making profit, the purpose of business is the promotion of social justice, which is why one of the reasons I think, if you look at so much of corporate America today, this is one of the reasons I think we find so much of it is woke, so much of it has bought into this type of agenda, because we've had a lot of people, including from business schools, who think that going into business, their purpose in life is to use this business to promote particular social goals, which may or may not be valuable in themselves. But business is not the place in which these things are supposed to be pursued, because every organization has what I like to call a telos, an, an end, a goal that defines its existence. So. A family's T loss is not the same as a T loss of a business, which is not the same as a T loss of the military, which is not the same as a T loss of the government. What we have in so much of America today is a mixing up of T losses. People think, a lot of people, particularly in corporate America, will tell you, oh yes, well, profit's part of it, but really it's about the advance of social justice, which means we as businesses, we have to think very differently about how we go about doing things, and maybe, maybe we should be putting profit a little lower when it comes to the priorities that businesses should be providing.
1: Hmm. Well, that's interesting because uh, you write a lot about cronyism and we discussed this earlier in this conversation, Um, but it seems like there's a connection there as well between this cronyism being close to the government, being close to favors, intervention, and things like they have uh, nowadays, like the ESGs, which are basically yes. environment, social, governance, and their um, incentives for companies to not focus on profit as their their ultimate goal, but to focus on all of these social justice features that you're mentioning here. So, is it, do you have any thoughts on how that's all related?
0: Oh, it's it, it's all very deeply related, right? Because we've seen the emergence of, as you say, ESG, environment, social, governance, concerns, which are basically a way for people to invest or for businesses to orientate themselves. So they say, we are socially responsible, we are concerned about the environment, and we want to have good governance. And what that usually means when you dig down into what they actually mean by these things, they're essentially the promotion of what would be what we would conventionally describe as progressive political causes. There's no question about that. When you look at what they're saying, well, this is what we mean by social, and this is what we mean by environmental, and this is what we mean by governance, it's essentially progressive political priorities. Now, to a certain extent, I think this is driven by uh, many companies' belief that lots of American consumers want their buying and selling choices to be um, reflective of their value systems, okay? I understand that. But I also think it's driven by a desire to try and avoid regulation, because I think many companies have made the calculation that if we don't embrace these things voluntarily, Mm -hmm. Then we're going to find ourselves in a position whereby the federal government is going to mandate this for us. So let's get ahead of the curve so the government doesn't mandate this for us so we can sort of control the way that we go about doing these things. Mm -hmm. The problem is, is that the people who are promoting these types of ideas are not going to be appeased. We already see this with, for example, the, uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission already starting to use language like, well, when it comes to the composition of boards, you need to have diversity, which means you need to have particular people or particular color or whatever it happens to be. You must have them on the board. Otherwise, you're not being good stewards of what you have. You're failing the governance criteria of what ESG means. Um, So I think so even though many of these companies, I think they think they're getting ahead of the curve, they think they're going to avoid regulation, the people pushing these agendas are not going to be appeased by companies voluntarily embracing all this stuff. I think they will say in the end, well, look, we, they had the opportunity to voluntarily embrace this, but they've done it in a very inadequate way. Therefore, we need to mandate it. And this is what um, the Biden administration Talks like this. When mm-hmm. Joseph P Biden was running for president, he used expressions like we have, to, we have to move away from what he called shareholder capitalism, which of course is the, the model of capitalism, which has been so successful in America. Instead, we need to move towards stakeholder capitalism. And by stakeholder, he means businesses that pay attention, to what different pressure groups want and demand from them. So that boards become responsible, not primarily for promoting shareholder value, but rather whether they are working in concert with these different stakeholder groups in the promotion of particular social and environmental causes. So it's, it's very disturbing because it's a type of getting inside businesses. And when you get these ideas get inside businesses, it's very difficult to get them out. And I think part of the problem is that many people in business are not particularly confident about the basic goodness of what they do in business and as commercial enterprises. And so they try to address that sense of, well, maybe I'm doing something that's useful, but it's not particularly socially valuable. So I need something else to validate what I'm doing. And ESG or the diversity, equity, and all that type of thing, that provides me with a raison d'être for why I get up in the morning.
1: Hmm. It actually kind of appeals to a, a narcissistic kind of virtue signaling. That's that's oh
0: sure yeah that's, that's what is going that's, towards that's, that's right. It, that's certainly part of it because, um, and here's the here's the here's a really negative thing about it. I'm going. I'm sure we're going to see. Company boards saying things like, well, guess what? We didn't quite realize the profit levels that we, we, we thought we would. But don't worry. We've been socially responsible. We've been good people. We've made sure that we've given to these particular causes. We've made sure that we've diversified our workforces, et cetera, et cetera. Look at us. We are good people. And that is the very definition of virtue signaling.
1: Yeah, well, if you look at the ESG's, it traces back to something like, I think the motto was developed in the 90s, people, uh, planet, and I don't even know if profits was in there, I forget the other P, I'll, I'll have to link it below. Um, but that's, it's really interesting because- Planet, it
0: kind of, people, uh, yes. planet, and yeah. um, the, the, whatever the third one was.
1: Right, and, and it's funny because uh, this was, the seeds were planted then, and I always come back to this at the same time that the central planning experiments, one of the biggest in history, failed, there was this right. idea that, you know, we still have to kind of um, uh, 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 keep keep this slow burning fire going, this idea that somehow, profits are bad, that they're exploitative, that capitalism is bad. And I think that it it relates to these ESGs and and how that has kind of crept up uh, since the 90s, really.
0: Yes, uh, you're exactly right, because organizations like the World Economic Forum, for example, headed up by Klaus Schwab, Mm -hmm. they have been articulating what you just described since the 1990s, Schwab has been arguing for this for for decades. And remember, the World Economic Forum is the place where the leaders of large corporations come together with the heads of government as well as the heads of big NGOs to talk about what should be happening in the world and how the economy should be developing and how we deal with political problems, social problems, environmental problems, etc. And It's a very corporatist mindset because it's like big business, big NGOs, big government working together to try and direct the economy in particular directions, which is classic corporatism. Um, But it's also, I think, reflective of the way that with the failure of central planning, the desire of many people to try and come up with a different set of economic arrangements that's different to the free market has not gone away. It's just transformed itself into different forum and expressing itself in different ways and producing policies, which might not be classic central planning, but certainly involve the state intervening, not just in the economy and the way that people behave and businesses behave, but even inside businesses, inside companies, trying to push them in these particular directions. And as I said, the directions are inevitably what would be called those of the progressive left. It's not not classic conservative concerns that they're particularly interested in. It's Mm -hmm. usually left-wing progressive ideas that make up the content of ESG.
1: So, unfortunately, though, because conservatives now are also wanting to apply interventionist policies, it doesn't seem like they'll actually be able to win the battle by kind of using the same tools mm. as the progressive left.
0: Yes, and it, you know, it's very interesting because in some areas, you see a significant overlap between what the progressive left want in some of these areas and some what some conservative political leaders have said. So for example, Elizabeth Warren, maybe one of the most progressive senators in the United States Senate, senator from Massachusetts, why else would she be anything else but a progressive, right? (laughs) Well, one of the things that she wants is to have um, it mandated that employees, workers be mandated seats on company boards. Now, her argument is that this is a way that you give workers, a say in management, et cetera. The problem, of course, is that it it results in roles getting blurred and distinguished. And those who are working for the company as employees are going to be not as concerned about things like the profit of the country. they're going to of the company. they're going to be concerned about um, whether they're going to have jobs in the future, right? And that tends to lend itself to, um, stagnation, unwillingness to take risks, unwillingness to use technology, etc. So it's very bad for companies. But guess what? Senator Marco Rubio conventionally identified as a conservative, conservative Republican from hmm. the state of Florida also wants worker representatives to be put on the boards of companies. So it's interesting. You see this interesting overlap between two people or two sides of politics that, that disagree with each other about almost everything. But in this economic area, we're seeing a certain degree of overlap. And that I think is concerning because I think it's getting traction. It's obviously got traction on the left, but I think it's getting some traction on the right as well now.
1: So there's a very good fictional example of what you just described in Atlas Shrugged, by Ayn Rand when you have people who are on the board and how chaotic that can get. Um, So if now we see that what basically separates the left and the right is a moral line, but no longer are the right adhering to more free market uh, economic ideas, what hope do we have for things moving forward?
0: (laughs) Well, (laughs) I think we have a lot of hope. I'm I'm a person of hope, which is different from optimism. Optimism and hope are two very different things, right? (laughs) So I'd say say a couple of things. Uh, First of all, I think these things tend to go in cycles, right? So I think that um, when we see mixed economies start to stagnate, when economies start to get into significant trouble, particularly if the conditions prevailing have been those of a mixed economy or Keynesian policies or Neo-Keynesian policies or different types of intervention, there is usually a drift back towards markets. That seems to happen at different points of history. Now, it flips the other way as well, usually obviously when there's a crisis, um, a lot of people will turn to the state to try and fix things. Mm. But it seems to me that uh, with the evident failure of so many of these policies that we've been critiquing today. Uh, I'm very confident that there's going to be a shift back at some point, I don't know when, I can't predict that, but I'm pretty sure there'll be a shift back because reality starts to kick in and markets are very good at reflecting certain realities about human beings and the way that we interact with each other in a way that mixed economies are much less good at doing. So I think at some point, the cycle will turn. A second thing I would say is that one of the advantages the United States has is that of federalism, and that's very important because it means that states are free to experiment and try different economic policies um, without expecting other states to automatically follow them or to be forced to follow them. So I think in the United States today, I think we can see in states like, for example, Arizona and Florida, and to name it, there are others, but let's take those two, that have moved in a more market liberal direction over the past, you know, 10, 15 years. They're doing very well. There are lots of people moving there. By contrast, we see states like New York or states like California or states like Illinois, which are riddled with cronyism, which are heavily overregulated, uh, in which... People are consequently leaving because they feel economically restricted, because they resent the high levels of taxation, they're fed up with the cronyism, they're moving to those states where they can experience and enjoy the fruits of more economic liberty. So I think there's a sort of sorting out process that's going on right now. The real question, however, is whether those people who move to places like Arizona or Florida will remember the reasons why they moved there. Because the worst thing they could do would be to leave um, failed states like New York and California and and move to places like Arizona or Florida or Texas or wherever it happens to be and start saying things like, well, this is all wonderful and great, but we need unions. Or well, maybe we need more regulation. And that's, I think, going to be a major challenge for those political leaders and free market people who live in these states that are flourishing because they have moved in a more free market direction, they have to be really careful that they educate those people who are coming and moving, escaping these failed states, why they moved there in the first place and not to replicate the same types of policies that have made places like California uh, and New York highly dysfunctional on an economic level.
1: I think that's a very good point. I'm not sure uh, if it will pan out that way, <laughs> but
0: <laughs> well, we'll see. <laughs>
1: yeah, and and I'm also wondering, maybe a final final question is, what would you call the current system that we live in? Is it capitalist? Wow. Is it crony? Is it technocracy? Is it kind of a neo-fascist system? What? Because people always say, well, you know, capitalism is to blame. I don't think we've had a capitalist system for a very long time. So, Mm -hmm. what would you call our our current state?
0: Oh, I think empirically speaking, it's pretty clear that the United States is a mixed economy. It's a mixed economy with uh, a fair amount of cronyism manifesting itself uh, to different degrees and with different levels of intensity uh, in different states. So I can't tell you what the exact number for is for how much of GDP is controlled by the federal or state governments in the United States, but I'm pretty sure it's about 30%. Now when the state is controlling 30% of GDP, that's not a market economy. It's not. It's not a classic market economy in which the state would probably directly control maybe between 5 and 10%, maybe, right? But we live in an economy where the state is controlling at least maybe 35% of gross domestic product. Hmm. That's not a classic free market system. We have lots of regulation in the United States. We have lots of cronyism, particularly in some very big urban environments in the United States. Places like Boston, places like New York, places like Los Angeles, places like Chicago. Are we seeing a common theme here? I mean, so so I think that we have a mixed economy with uh, and a lot of, I would argue, a lot of cronyism. And at the level of macroeconomic policy, we live very much in, a, in a, what I would call a sort of Neo-Keynesian set of arrangements. So I think you're right to say that we, we to America, is a capitalist economy, I think we would have to put a lot of caveats on that particular description before we accepted it. I think it's, we obviously have some of the basic ingredients of capitalism. We have private property, we have sort of rule of law. We have, um, we have a lot, we have one we still have the highest level of entrepreneurship in the world, which I think is what helps us to get through so many problems. Um, and I think in America, there are a lot of people who who don't have a negative view of capitalism, who come to the United States because they want to enter into what they believe is a freer economic system compared to where they've come from. But I think you're right. To say that we live in a capitalist economy in the classic sense is clearly not true. It's much more of a mixed economy with a lot of cronyist behavior Overlaying all which is what I would call neo-Keynesian macroeconomic policy settings.
1: Wow, that's, that's a long one, but it, it sounds like a good description to me. <laughs> so it's a depressing
0: like one as well, unfortunately.
1: <laughs> Dr. Samuel Gregg, well, this has been a really wonderful conversation. I enjoyed this so much. Uh, you have your new book coming out, The New American Economy.
0: The Uh, Next American Economy.
1: Excuse me, The Next American Economy, which will be out in September. And um, where can people follow you? On Twitter, Dr. Samuel, Gregg? anywhere else that they can go to find your work?
0: Well, I'd suggest obviously the uh, American Institute for Economic Research, AIER's website. You'll find many articles of mine there. And if you're looking to buy books, you can go straight to Amazon, it's all there. But uh, I'd encourage people to look at AAIR's website to see the work that I'm doing, but also the work that lots of other scholars are doing here in trying to advance the case for markets in an environment where I think we desperately need more such voices.
1: Excellent. Well, Samuel, thank you so much. Would you like to leave our audience with any last thoughts?
0: Uh, The only last thoughts that I would have is that we should be people of hope when it comes to thinking about these things. We should be willing to put our trust in the minds of people. And we should also, I think, go back and look at the founding and the sort of the economic vision that I think more or less came out of that, that was more or less triumphant, I think, in many respects, because I think that in the end, if we're going to move back in the direction of a more economically free society, we need to ground it upon something that's very important to America, which is the heart of America's identity, which is the founding, and more broadly, the American experiment in ordered liberty.
1: Thank you so much, and uh, hope to speak with you again soon.
0: Thank you, Kate. Thank you for having me on.